happening now. We'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room for August the 4th, 2021, episode 226. Can you believe it, folks? That is a large number. Dr. Neifer and I like to hang out together. That's the bottom line. Uh, and, you know, rant about stuff. <laughs> I'm Wes Fryer. I am a fifth and sixth grade media literacy teacher, sixth grade advisor this year, and the technology integration innovation specialist at the Cassidy School here in Oklahoma City. And joined, as always, proudly to showing his Montana state flag, and he probably has a lot of other weapons and things. I think everyone in Montana has, like, lots of guns. So, actually, Dr. Neifer probably has technology, because for him, <laughs> the screen is more powerful <laughs> than the bullet. Anyway, whatever. Yes, Dr. Neifer, <laughs> greetings. How is Missoula tonight? Uh, a little little hazy tonight, uh, as has been the last six or eight weeks, but otherwise not too bad. Uh, warm. It's been a long string of... of, of uh, 90 plus days here in Missoula, but otherwise great, where I am the assistant director and curriculum director of the Montana Digital Academy, which is Montana's state virtual school located on the University of Montana campus right here in beautiful Missoula, Montana. Um, but yeah, we're just, uh, it's the dog days here in August, and um, usually is this when we would start the fire season, it would be around this time, but unfortunately, um, we're on week six or seven of it by now, so it's it's been pretty intense out here. Um and uh, you know, a lot of heat, and I just saw in the weather that tomorrow is what's called a red flag warning, which means that the humidity and uh, 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 lightning storms will mix together with high winds to create a uh, bad fire condition. So we're remaining uh, very hopeful that that uh, um, um, new fires don't start, and that uh, obviously offer our uh, sincere gratitude to all those that fight wildfires because it's uh it's very dangerous and also incredibly necessary. Wow. Well, you know, it's just kind of weird as the Delta variant of COVID has continued to, you know, gain not only news, but, uh, you know, march across the country. And it kind of seems like the way this uh, pandemic can grow, like just about any any area that's not a hot spot could become one really soon. So yeah. uh, we've been watching that. And um, I went back to work on Monday and had a chance yesterday and today to share a couple of presentations with our uh, new faculty. And uh, we'll be talking a little bit about some of that and some of the things I, I learned, especially about Google stuff. And uh, anyway, it's, I was really hoping to, you know, go back to a no mask situation, but the reality is I teach fifth and sixth grade primarily, and none of them are vaccinated. So uh, I just, you know, I realized uh, here a few weeks ago, okay, going to be back to the mask. And, and I'm, I'm trying to wear that when I'm with people. Um, so we'll, we'll have to see. I think there's a lot of schools. Our daughter just moves back tomorrow to university, to the sorority. They don't start for a couple weeks, but you know, it's kind of a little bit like last year where you're like, <laughs> schools are waiting to see what other schools are going to do and announce, you know, and, and how that's going to be handled. Um, so, yeah, kind of kind of crazy. So how did it feel to, though, be back in the office and to be back on campus? Was it at all? Yeah, I started back this this past Monday um, in part because we had new employees we were onboarding. And I'm, I'm continuing to remain very careful. And I think we've talked about this specifically in the podcast in the past. So I am a kidney transplant recipient, which means I take immunosuppressant drugs. And the, the frank bottom line is that according to research from John Hopkins University, of which I am a participant in their study, 
um, uh, uh, solid organ transplant recipients that, uh, that especially those that take a certain drug called microphenolate, um, just didn't develop a very robust amino response. In fact, about 70% of organ transplant recipients didn't, didn't have any amino response at all to COVID vaccines. And, um, for in one way, shape or another, not all organ transplant recipients, but uh, not all of them are organ transplant recipients, but 15 million Americans are immunocompromised and likely had at least, at least a minimization of the effectiveness of, of, of the COVID vaccine, if not no immuno response at all. So, uh, for folks like me, um, it, you know, it means remaining very careful. So luckily I'm in an office where I don't have to, I'm, I'm behind, literally behind a glass, uh, 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 wall. Um, we have, uh, I'm in a, a newer wing of the building. So there's brand new HVAC, uh, in, in our, in our department. So I can just mask up, go to my office, talk to people through the window and call it a day. But, um, yeah, it's still, COVID's still very real. Um, uh, ignoring the Delta variant for those even beyond the very infectious Delta variant. Um, uh, COVID's still very real for a lot of folks, uh, even with the vaccines around. Well, it's going to be around for a while. Well, tonight we are going to be talking about a variety of topics. Uh, you can check out all these on our Google Doc, which you'll find at edtechsr.com slash links. We've got our Googly stuff. It's a Google world. Uh, Apple article, a few Microsoft articles, security articles, the tech correction, uh, several different COVID-related um, articles, some space, and then, of course, our Geeks of the Week, which I know everyone is just waiting with bated breath for. So... Dr. Neifer, you, I think, put in quite a few articles tonight. Is there a topic you would like to start with? Well, sure. Let's knock some just kind of uh, uh, tech, tech stuff out of the way. Let's do a couple of Microsoft articles. So I'll start off uh, with um, an article from about Chromebooks, Kevin Tofel's uh, excellent uh, Chromebook resource. And there's a couple of things here that, that I was I was kind of struck by. Um, he wrote on July 29th that a lot of people have been reporting that uh, Microsoft's Office apps on Android on Chromebooks um, are um, some of them are not working, and many of them are actually directing um, users to use the web-based version of it instead. And a lot of people thought this was kind of the beginning of the end of Microsoft's push to have the Android app available on Chromebooks, and then eventually they would eliminate that, uh, leaving the web-based only version. Um, but Mr. Tofel does a pretty good job of, of uh, diminishing those concerns, saying that Microsoft has made announcements suggesting they're trying to bundle the app again. So you're not using Excel, you're using an Office app that has Excel, Word, and PowerPoint all integrated into uh, the same system. And that app on Android on Chromebooks works just fine. The reason why I wanted to mention this is both because, um, you know, the I'm increasingly convinced that the long-term viability of Android apps on Chromebook, I mean, they'll be viable. I just don't know if it's going to change a whole lot in regards to the way things work on, on Android. Now I've been wrong uh, before on, on developments like this. And I will note for the, the record that the opera browser, uh, which is available in a desktop version or desktop version ish now on Chromebooks via the Android app store is an excellent application on, on Chromebook. So, uh, you know, never to say never, but the other comment I want to make about this is that I'm still convinced that Android apps aren't the power of the Chrome OS architecture. I think it's the web that really is the power here. And 
one of the reasons why I love Chrome OS so much is because, um, you know, over the last seven or eight years, I've gone from being primarily on the web to almost exclusively on the web. And I use relatively few desktop or mobile apps in my day-to-day productivity, especially as it uh, relates to my job, you know, helping run Montana State Virtual School. And so, um, you know, I really do think that Chrome OS power users, and, and admittedly, it's a relatively narrow group that self-identify as Chrome OS power users, I think the reason why they are power users is because they're doing their work primarily on the web and not waiting for Chrome to to look more like the the Mac operating system or Windows. Mr. Tovel has a nice acronym that you may want to talk about related to this. He says, um, you can install those as a PWA, by the way. Would you like to explain for those people that may not know um, and I'm also saying that without Googling it. I'm, I'm pretty sure I know what that is, but what, yeah, what is Yeah, Progressive Web App is a PWA. And in fact, we've got another article uh, that we'll, we'll pull in in a moment from Google World. But the, the bottom line is that um, uh, you can make an app-like experience. You can actually do this on, on, on Mac OS and, and Windows as well. But um, you know, a lot of web pages you can... Uh, uh, turn into a progressive web, web app and it will live in your icon bar at the bottom of, of your screen and you can open it up in its own window without the, the bookmark bar and the address bar in it and it looks kind of like an app. In fact, uh, right now, since I've been back in the office and I have a, a, a Chrome OS desktop at work that... Um, well, frankly, I hadn't used in the last 18 months or so because I've been home. But getting back into Chrome OS this week, uh, uh, getting ready to support kids that are using Chrome uh, OS as part of, of, of their participation in my program, um, I've relearned to love progressive web apps. And so you can install... Uh, Google Calendar is a progressive web app. You can install uh, Gmail as a progressive web app. You can install, actually, uh, almost any page can be a progressive web app uh, by just saving the page to your desktop, which is a feature that, that exists inside of Chrome browsers. Um, and this is going to sound a little silly, but I do do a lot of social media work for an organization or two. Um, I even have an emoji dictionary Um uh, uh, as a progressive web app I've created for myself. And I can't remember which particular one. I think it's Emojipedia. But, you know, when I want to make a, a tweet or something that has a uh, uh, an emoji in it and I want to look at a directory or I want to find something unique, then I go to, it's actually getemoji.com, which I've turned into a progressive web app on my Mac desktop. And so, uh, you know, the bottom line is, is that it takes a little bit of thinking, but I do think that with very few exceptions, uh, the web is where it's at when you're on Chrome OS. I would also note, too, um, I spend quite a bit of time in Office 365 on the web, uh, still a lot of use uh, for those applications in, in my professional life. And I find that they they are good enough now that unless you're doing really nuanced things, there's a handful of things that still don't appear there, uh, bizarrely don't appear there. Um, but for the vast majority of, of documents and document creation, the web-based version is more than good enough. And if you if you take the, the app full screen, in other words, if you take the address bar off the top, uh, that's F11 um, on on Windows, for example, and and uh, uh, take out the kind of browser frame, it looks like uh, a Word or PowerPoint or Excel on the desktop app, right? And and you have access to it at the full screen. So, um, yeah, I I still think the power of Chrome OS is the fact that the web itself is an extremely powerful platform. 
And I dropped in your link to the Emojipedia and then also a link to Fluid. Have you used Fluid before on your Mac? Uh, that sounds familiar. I haven't used it in quite a while. It's still there and it's still taking money, I guess. So I think it's still working. And yeah, that was something I had explored a while back. Uh, same deal, PWA. You'd like to have, you know, Gmail as an app, quote unquote, that you have in your applications folder okay, of sure. your Mac. And you use the Fluid app, you know, in order to create that. So yep, I, I'm pretty good with tabs. But anyway, I don't know. It just depends on your workflow and how you want to set things up. So it's a cool exactly. option to have. Yeah. Cool. And then one other interesting article that is actually kind of Chrome related for me, but I, I also think it inspires kind of an interesting uh, what if. But Microsoft is is rolling out um, a web-based Windows 365 cloud PCs. And um, there's there's a lot of coverage on this in the Windows media in the last week. But basically, via the web, you can have a Windows desktop with software installed on it somewhere out on the cloud. Um, and uh, it, they were they were doing free trials of it, uh, free, I think, no timeout trials, as they're trying to figure out the scalability of that. They've subsequently stopped that because a lot of people were interested, and so they were being a bit overloaded by requests. But one of the secrets that, uh, in fact, this was a tip I gave uh, at the Northwest Council for Computer Education Conference earlier this year in my advanced Chromebookology uh, uh, lecture, um, is that, uh, you know, I, I, I do have a Windows PC. Uh, right now it's sitting at home, and, and when I'm fully back at work again, I'll take a, a Windows PC at work and do this as well. And there are four or five convenience applications that work only on a PC or a Mac, for that matter, um, that, um, I can use Chrome remote desktop via my Chromebook to, you know, uh, essentially remote into that and utilize that as a, a, a kind of a stopgap. Um, you know, it's cheating for sure, right? Because, you know, oh, it's like the guy that's all about Chromebooks and you look at him using a PC and it's true, right? That that's a, that that's, that that's a bit of, of a concern of mine. But I also see a scenario where, you know, imagine for a moment that you have a very modest computer or you have an old computer um, and you want a fast, modern machine that this notion of cloud-based PCs, I think, are very, very, very interesting. I mean, they're expensive. $20 a month is the minimum for what I would say is a relatively low-end uh, PC um, whereas if you're getting, if you're talking about eight or 16 gigabytes of RAM and a lot more storage, you're, you're in the 40, 50, $60 a month. At that point, I think it starts to make a little bit less sense, but, you know, imagine for a moment, uh, you know, having cloud PCs for teachers so that, um, you know, uh, you control the security on the PC a hundred percent because it's not like, it's not a local PC. It's, it's out in the cloud. You can deny people access to it. If you want, you can enforce security controls in a way that, that is somewhat difficult to do if the PC is in your physical presence. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of interesting things uh, about this and I like that Microsoft's going in this direction. And this is a version of the thin client yep. vision for computing, which has been a part of what we've, we've done in schools, you know, I shoot, even I think weren't at one time before, before, uh, what was it? What, what app? There was a, there were, there were Apple computers that kind of ran off of a central brain. And, and then I think the, 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 the computers were more consoles. But anyway, there have been a number of schools that have, you know, worked with vendors and gone that route to install labs that were thin clients. You had this really, you know, monster powerful server and then need to be local. Uh, but now that the web, you know, is getting so fast and these apps are so robust, um, that is, that's exciting. We've talked about that before. And I think, 
you know, the option to create almost anything inside your web browser, that's that's incredibly good news for schools, right? Because Chromebooks are far and away the most popular platform, um, you know, and, and there's, it's going to be interesting. I will have an opportunity this year to have a MacBook Air cart uh, in my, my classroom, um, but all of my kids will have brand new Chromebooks. So we're going to test Minecraft both on the Chromebooks and then we'll see, you know, I know it's going to be super fast and awesome on these, these Macs, but it, it'll, I'm going to take that as a personal challenge. What could we do on that Mac laptop that we couldn't, you know, do? And of course, iMovie comes to mind and, and yeah. some of the some of the apps like that. But again, WeVideo and, and the cloud-based options, there's there's a lot of them. So that's a uh, that's good news. And I may have to try. I, I, I don't know. We'll remember the PWA thing because you know if you're using something all the time, yeah, it, it can make sense to have that as its own app icon. Yeah. So, all right. Well, heck, let's do some space articles. Um, there were some, ex there's been some exciting and also troubling things that have happened uh, recently with space. I'll uh, take a little personal moment and mention that the reason why our family actually watched the launch of this module from Kazakh, I think from Kazakhstan, uh, from Russia. Uh, it's this, it was this really big module that's replacing something that's been up there for 20 years. Um, that article I just put in is the New York Times from August the 2nd. It was his day off. Then the space station went for a spin. They had a little trouble with this, um, this module, you know, going to the space station, but that those things got addressed. But once it had actually locked onto the space station, keep in mind, the International Space Station, which has been up for 20 years, is about 900,000 pounds. And it, 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 um, it's like the size of a football field. The initial reports of this said that there was a thruster that had fired and it went about 45 degrees. No, it actually flipped over and the flight controllers had to jump into emergency mode, declare a space emergency. And this New York Times article is a wonderful interview with the flight controller who was there and handled this. And you know what? It's like Apollo 11 or something. Was it an Apollo? Uh, not 11. Um, what was the one where Apollo 13? <laughs> Apollo 13, when they had to, you know, bring everybody back and, and just, you know, it was a success because they lived and they didn't die. Uh, the astronauts that were aboard this, the ISS didn't report like, you know, a loss of gravity or in, induced gravity because of the spin. But uh, just a great example of engineering and what engineers do when an emergency happens. You know, they look at the data and they get to work because the antennas were actually misaligned. Uh, they lost contact with the ISS for four minutes at one time and then seven minutes. And what they had to do was actually fire other thrusters because Russian controllers were the only ones that could control this. And it's come out that instead of a software glitch, they think it was a human error that caused this. That module, the new one, actually had to run out of propellant, and they had to shoot other propellant out to counter and stop the motion, you know. And so, anyway, obviously, when you have that kind of thing going on with a structure, it puts, you know, stress on it. And the new Boeing Starliner was supposed to go up, like, two days ago, and it's been postponed. I think – actually, I should have seen. I think it might have – I don't know if it was rescheduled for today or, or for, you know, tomorrow. But, anyway, that is exciting, and that's definitely – I'm going to talk to my kids about this. Uh, as we come back to school, uh, just talking about space. And then Ars Technica had a really, really good article uh, that Eric Berger did um, also on August 2nd. And it, the title there is uh, Nakua, which is, I don't know if I'm saying that right, but that's the name of the module. Nakua modules near miss raises, raises concerns about the future of the space station. 
Um, and they talk about how there was a spacewalk that was aborted because of poor attention to detail that some Russian technicians had. Russia's not getting millions of dollars to send our astronauts up. They're hurting because they're not getting that money. You know, Vladimir Putin is not a fantastic and wonderful economic leader for the nation. And anyway, the space program in Russia is hurting. And so there's some question about whether these kinds of mistakes are going to bode poorly for continued, you know, collaboration. But yeah, anyway, wild to think about being a controller and having this go off and being like, oh crap, we can't even control those thrusters on that module because, you know, they're in Russia and we've got to figure out a way to solve it. So I just think it's a cool engineering uh, sort of STEM, you know, story. Um, and it's also exciting to share space with kids, right? The stuff that's happening, you know, I don't have this article, but SpaceX just, you know, put together 29 different engines on their Falcon Heavy or whatever. And, and anyway, the stuff that's going on, I saw an ad from Richard Branson a personal ad to me today on YouTube saying that I could join him in space and I could enter to join, you know, have a chance to go. But, and I know there's lots of issues, you know, to insert talks about, you know, Branson and Bezos and, and all this stuff. There's all kinds of memes and things that are going on about that, but it is really freaking cool that we have more things going on in space. And I think that's exciting. Dr. Neifer, would you sign up to go into low earth orbit? Even for 30 seconds. Uh, maybe. I mean, I, like, I, I, I'm fascinated from space from the standpoint of the futuristic look at it, right? But the intermediary stuff is, is less interesting and less exciting to me. Um, I will say that, you know, I was like most other kids of the 80s and that I was obsessed with the shuttle missions and, um, you know, very much kept an eye on that as a, as a, a, a growing nerd um, uh, during that time period. But, I do think, um, you know, the, the space, uh, one of the things that's, that's always challenging about the space conversation, right, and we vastly underfund uh, space operations in comparison to uh, 30 years ago. One of the reasons why is because I think the space program has is, is, is been strained to articulate a message um, about the importance of it. And I have no doubt that uh, there is incredible amounts of, of information and technology development and then ultimately resources that we could uh, utilize uh, by kind of finding out what's next there. But I do find um, the kind of era of private space travel uh, to be super interesting. And while uh, a short trip into low Earth orbit isn't all that interesting to me, I do I would guess that we have uh, a realistic uh, consumer available uh, uh, trips and 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 opportunities to stay, you know, lengthy amounts of time and space in the future. All right. What, what article topic would you like next? Well, let me do a quick Mac one um, and then let's jump into the the long list of uh, Google articles. I, I just saw this article the other day and it reminded me of something I heard a couple of years ago. But um, uh, iPhone hacks reported on June 30th. There's been some random reports um, uh, that that are becoming a little more consistent that the displays on on M1 MacBook Airs and M1 MacBook Pros are cracking without any visible, um, a visible reason why, right? Like there isn't an impact on the outside. It's not dropped. It, nothing is going into the screen or being dropped onto the laptop itself. And, you know, so far it, you know, the, so many of these devices have been sold. In fact, uh, you know, Apple had an earnings call, I think it was last week where, you know, their, their, uh, uh Mac sales have exploded in the last year with a lot of people you know, excited about the new M1 chip. But the reason why this article meant something to me was that, 
Um, I've known more than a handful of people that have gone around for years with a crack in their display, uh, uh, you know, thinking it wasn't worth their time. But what I would tell you is, especially these early days, you know, since the M1 has only been out for, what, eight and nine months now, you should consider, if you end up having a crack display, take it to the Apple store and have them take a look at it. Because oftentimes... Um, especially, uh, with new devices, like, like newly released, uh, models of devices, uh, Apple has instructions out to, uh, Mac store, or I'm sorry, Apple stores to gather, um, uh, uh, damage that, that they either haven't seen before or only seen rarely and offer an exchange, even if you're not, uh, 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 able to get one, right? There's an obvious reason why, like, even if you, you, you borked your laptop yourself, right? You dropped it or uh, you did something stupid to it, that bring it into the Apple store and have a conversation with them about it. And you might find either that there is a reasonable cost replacement available, or they might replace it for free just to bring your initial laptop back to the mothership, literally the mothership and talk about, um, uh, you know, look at at why it failed or 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 why it uh, uh, ended up being damaged by whatever you did to it. So so don't don't you know don't suffer with a with a crack display. And if you're in one of these folks that you know you leave the room, you come back and your Mac display is cracked, uh, bring it to the Apple Store. Or if you're sad like me and don't have access to an Apple Store, uh, send it you know uh, send it off for repair uh, because you might find that you're pleasantly surprised by Apple's policies there. Yeah, we've had some good experiences there. Um, that article cites a couple of people that did say, "Hey, I didn't bork this. I didn't, you know, drop yep. this. It, yep. it it cracked." So um, I'll say that um, I've been enjoying the new M1. Um, I got to test one, you know, in the spring, and then got that uh, at the beginning of the summer. Man, it is so incredibly fast, and yep. especially at 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 school, uh, internet is fast here at the house. But yeah, it is. It's really really spectacular. Absolutely. All right, Google, sir. Something going on with the Googles this week? Well, um, uh, a related article that we've already kind of talked about, the broader concept, uh, Google Meet uh, now has a simple a progressive web app available on Mac, Windows, and Chrome OS. If you're a Meet user, you can put the Meet icon in your icon tray, no matter which one of those devices are there. Um, I did uh, come up with one article that I thought be worth a conversation, because I know, Wes, and I talked about this in the past, Really interesting article from The Ringer on July 21st, 2021, called The Day the Good Internet Died. It's actually an article about the death of Google Reader. And, um, the, and you see the, you see the sadness and pain in Wes's face when we mention Google Reader. The reason why this, this article is interesting to me is because it, 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 it's trying to make a, 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 a broad claim that the internet became less functional and maybe less good when the reader went away. And to be clear, reader wasn't the only RSS reader in the world, but it certainly had a simplicity of, of design that I think made it very attractive to people like, like me and Dr. Fryer, right? Uh, you know, uh, power users that like to process the web, get a sense of, of, of a lot of different attitudes from a lot of different pieces. Um, the article talks about how a lot of people blame uh, the demise of Google Reader with the demise broadly of blogging, the blog traffic has gone down dramatically for smaller, especially smaller blogs or more niche blogs that, that, that may focus on a smaller audience. Um, and that there really hasn't been 
I guess for lack of a better way of putting it, a, an alternative available that had simplicity. And to be clear, lots and lots of RSS readers still exist in, in 2021. Technology is still alive and well, but there was something about the, 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 the simplicity of Google Reader that made it really useful. And, um, you know, I, I, even the way I collect articles for this show each week, right? And, and, and usually it, for me, it's about 50% looking at headlines on four or five different websites that I trust for that. And then it's using Flipboard on the weekends when I'm, I'm looking and reading technology with my coffee on a Saturday or Sunday morning. And Flipboard is actually kind of an RSS reader of sorts, a very visual one. But uh, this article, especially if you're a Google Reader fan, I think is a must-read because I think it articulates well my personal feelings about how the web just became a little less useful when Google Reader went away. And to tie this into contemporary conversations that we've been having about, you know, the tech correction and Australia fighting to, you know, make Google and Facebook pay uh, journalists and, and uh, you know, pony up money. Um, I think one of the things that really happened with the RSS standard and with Google Reader is that it really stripped out a lot of advertising. I mean, it's possible, and some people do and did, I think probably still do, you know, put inline ads. But, you know, it was just this really incredible way to be able to, you know, subscribe to a feed. So um, I still, I, I love Flipboard. I also use my Twitter lists a lot. I look at Twitter lists in Flipboard most frequently. Um, because as far as I know, that's not an algorithmically filtered feed. It is just a feed of content coming chronologically from the people that you follow that are in that list, you know, and anyway, Google reader, I, I have a Feedly account that I still periodically open up on my phone. In fact, in fact, I think my free account that I had like hundreds of feeds and, and somehow, you know, I might have a grandfathered account that they're not, you know, charging me for. Right, right. But uh, yeah, I will. I will check that out. I got to read about the Oregon Trail a couple of weeks ago tonight. <laughs> I'm going to read about Google Reader, folks. Look how the EdTech Situation Room enriches our lives. It's not even the geek of the week, so awesome. There it is. All right, what else? <laughs> Let's see here. Um, oh, this is an interesting piece of information. Uh, if you are in a Google school, uh, Chrome and Box reports on August second. That Google is now natively opening up Office documents in a in, in an editable form. So it's kind of a long story here, but uh, you can now just open up a. Uh, this is especially true when you're in Chrome OS, but you can also do it if you are uh, if you have a, a Word, PowerPoint, or Excel document in your Google Drive. When you open it up, it used to open up to a preview, right? You could view the file, but if you want to edit it, you needed to then say, no, I want to edit it, right? And now every time Google Drive opens up a, a, a Microsoft document, so that's Word, PowerPoint, Excel, it opens it up so you can just edit it. And I can tell you from my standpoint, supporting students remotely that are coming from tons of different uh, districts, many of which are Google Drive, that uh, students aren't necessarily taught in Google districts kind of how to deal with the Microsoft world that's out there. And so that's going to be very useful. And I think that's a great change on Google's part. And, um, you know, I, I still know plenty of folks that, that prefer the desktop apps uh, uh, to the web-based apps. But um, I will tell you, for quick editing or if you're in Google World, that's really excellent news. That is a, uh, a, a web service is, is playing out to be one less click to make it useful. And you are a mute, sir. 
allow me to just encourage you to read my lips. Thank you uh, very much. <laughs> my my Google News for the day. I was almost going to do cha-cha-chong. Um, this is my breaking news. And it's not that breaking because the article, first one I'll share is from June. But major, major changes are coming to the way that Google schools, uh, which is now Google Workplace for Education, I think, instead of uh, Google Apps for Education, um, have content restricted for students who are under 18. So I'll talk about a presentation I shared for my Geek of the Week, but I really couldn't find that many articles. This article from the Tribune is like this newspaper in India. Uh, it's the trip. It's, it's called it's tribuneindia.com, which I'm not like, you know, really familiar with their work. But uh, anyway, they covered um, on June 30th, this upcoming change, which they put in bold on September 1st, 2021. Students under 18 in K-12 schools can only view YouTube content assigned by teachers. They won't be able to post videos, comment, live stream, or even cast on TVs using a school-managed Google account. Um, okay, so digging into this a little bit deeper, um, I actually found this on a blog post. I was uh, the, the post that, that Jason had shared last week uh, is great. A lot of those are forthcoming changes coming later this year, like being able to have an assignment in classroom and push it out to multiple classes at the same time, or the actually meet is becoming even more Zoom-like in the waiting room and in some of those kinds of features. Um, on that same Google Education blog, they have a post that is also dated uh, June well, 29th called Safer Learning with Google for Education. Now, going back to the... Um, Oh, Miami Device Conference, I guess. And I'll have to, uh, Jen Carey, I'll do a shout out to her. Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll uh, contact her on Twitter. There was a friend of hers in Florida who was doing a lot of stuff on internet safety, but terms of service agreements and the heck of a lot of schools really kind of ignoring terms of service and just letting kids use all kinds of tools and resources, regardless of whether they had had parent permission or not. Um, and it's, it's one of those things that there's a lot of folks probably like, well, not wanting to get into the weeds with that, um, because there's, you know, and this was a little closer to the day, the heady days of web 2.0, you know, Google reader, all that stuff. But anyway, um, I think this is good overall. Uh, that was the article from the Google blog because there's a bunch of different, um, tools that are, are uh, you know, not part of Google for Education, but they're still Google tools. And so what they're allowing the Google admins to do is to have a greater menu of options for how to restrict those. So I put several support articles, and I'll include these in the show notes. And I also actually wrote a, a blog post on my blog right before we got online. Um, this is a Google Workspace admin help article called Control Access to Google Services by Age. And it's not just YouTube, it's Search, it's Google Play, Google Maps and Earth, Photos. And then there's also a whole list of services not available to users under 18. You can override it if you want. Um, but for YouTube, um, you uh, are able to, um, you know, decide under 18, uh, do you want all these restrictions to go in, in place? If you do nothing, if your organization does nothing as of September 1st, all of the, quote, students, and, you know, that's a, a tag that comes from Google Classroom because you're either a teacher or a student um, based on what you're doing in Google Classroom. You can't create classes or be a teacher unless you're, you're tagged as, as a teacher. Um, you um, are all of your students are going to be 
I think, facing the, the most restricted level. And so this is another support article that's called Manage Your Organization's YouTube Settings. Um, and there's three different levels, strict restricted, <laughs> moderate restricted, and then unrestricted. Uh, so you certainly ho and hopefully do have your students organized in OUs, organizational units, so that like middle schoolers can have their own set of restrictions and high schoolers, you could do something, you know, that might be might be graduated. But final article that I have linked in here, a uh, support article says, uh, add YouTube video approvers for your organization. This is really big. There is a simple couple button, you know, process in the Google admin console where your Google admin can make all teachers approvers. Um, but if they don't do that, then only admins and those who are designated approvers, that may just not even be admins, people may have to be designated to be approvers, are going to be able to authorize YouTube videos that students can watch. Now, I put this blog post up tonight and... Uh, Every Google school needs to be looking at this for their students and, and having conversations, hopefully. Hopefully, it's not going to be one of these things that IT will make a, a decision about in isolation. Uh, a lot of us rely on YouTube on a daily basis. And if you're not using a Chromebook, which the Chromebook is going to you know, enforce this entirely, if you're on an iPad or you're on an Apple laptop or a Windows laptop, may not quite be the same if somebody's not if, if students are not logged into their Google account right yeah. because they'll just bypass it so this really is is most restrictive and or most applicable for those that are in a Chromebook environment but i think the idea of having a greater level of free provided restriction options for youtube is definitely important there are wonderful, wonderful videos and content on YouTube. There's also stuff that is really, really problematic. And so we've gone around and around with filters. You know, I was the tech director at our school for four years. And before that, you know, in different schools and organizations that were dealing with it and trying to find filtering solutions that would address it. And, and Google's gone through different iterations. So, Dr. Neifer, any of this news to you? Uh, do you think this will be uh, helpful and interesting to Montana school Completely news to me, which is interesting because I, you know, I would get all the emails that a Google admin would get. And I guess I'm sure I must have missed something. But, yeah, that is that is news to me. I, I guess I mean, this may be controversial. What I'm about to say. I hope it's not. But I'm, I'm sure that some folks would take would take at least some exception to this. But, you know, the bottom line is, is that I have no problem with completely blocking YouTube all you want to. Uh, but teachers should have the say in which videos get unblocked, right? Like, um, I, I do think that there, I mean, there's a lot of content on YouTube that is quite, that, that's questionable for uh, students of certain ages, right? Even things that are relatively harmless, right? But, uh, like, you know, how to set up prank videos, for example, uh, maybe something that, that is appropriate for a 16 or 17 year old may not be appropriate for, a nine and 10 year old, that sort of thing. Right. But the bottom line is, is that I think teachers should be the ultimate judge of that. Right. And instead of, I think, blocking for teachers that I think should have access to make the judgment of what materials end up in their classroom. And let's be honest, if you're, if you're blocking, if you're not blocking, um, 
um, uh, uh, teachers from accessing full view. If you are, I think you're, you're diminishing a, a real important instructional tool. But if you aren't, you know, teachers can just show something up on their projector anyways. But I think something that I, I think we, we need to come to terms with is that the more we can put the power in, in, in students' hands, I'm sorry, in, in teachers' hands to, to, to figure out, you know, that, that important line between what's appropriate for or age appropriate and what's not, I think it's better. But this seems like the closest I've seen from Google to having tool set that makes sense to me because of, you know, I like that notion of going through Google Classroom. You can approve videos that way, right? I think that makes a lot of sense. But Wes, you come up with an extremely good example of something that if you are on a device and you're not signed in to your Google account on however you're accessing YouTube there, for example, an alternative browser, you're in Firefox but not logged in, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, it could create, I think, a real um, uh, a barrier to access to those resources. Or just a way to bypass it. You know, students are just going to be able to use use an alternative browser and, you know, boom, off off they go. Um Probably, let's see, 2012 to 2015, I was in Yukon Public Schools. And at the time, Yukon was using light speed content filters. And there was um, a tool that they used. Was it called something My Big Campus, I think? I think it was My Big Campus. It was, a, it was an LMS. It was free if you were using their filter. And at that time, if a teacher added a YouTube video into their course it would automatically be unfiltered for all students in the district on the filter because the filter was working in tandem with the learning management system. Those are the kind of solutions that I've seen schools and districts work with in the past to try to address this. Um, <laughs> well, I guess she's not there anymore, but my, my sister-in-law was a librarian at Allen high school, which is like, I think it's the largest high school in Texas. It's got over 5,000 students and it was only in the last two years that they unblocked YouTube for students. I mean, they had it completely blocked for high school students. Kids would just get on their phones and go and do whatever they wanted. But anyway, and that's not just to throw out in high school, uh, you know, completely under the bus. There are other schools that have done this. We've talked, you know, ad nauseum at length in past years about balanced content filtering and trying to encourage, you know, schools not to be draconian with this. I think that that these announcements by Google and these changes are positive. They certainly require conversation and collaboration among not just school administrators, but teachers as well uh, to have input into this. And uh, anyway, the article I'll share the, that is a geek of the week, um, you know, goes through that. And if that can encourage you to, to have some conversations in, in your school, like I said, these restrictions, according to all this documentation, they go into effect September one. Um, you have to decide to change some of it, but all of your kids will be restricted. Uh, all of them will be marked as under 18 and you'll have to go in or your admins will have to go in and make changes for it. So it follows along with what we continue to see in technology and IT that's more power to restrict content and to, you know, surveil and to observe, you know, is sort of given to the central authorities. But, you know, in schools, we're different than, than businesses and other organizations. Um, filtering is important. It's required by E-rate and it's just, uh, it's a moral obligation. To, to have some filtering in place, uh, I think not only at school, but at, at home as well. Um, but that, you know, how draconian and how severe you get into Jason's point, we need to empower teachers. We're all about empowering teachers here. And so I hope that you'll be able to have those good conversations. I've 
uh, started to initiate those at our school. And uh, hopefully this is going to be a real positive. But the, the schools that are going to realize the benefit of this the most are, I think, going to be the Chromebook only schools. Um, we'll have to see. But I think if you're using a different platform and you want to comprehensively restrict YouTube content, you're going to have to do that uh, in a different way, not just through these Google options. Absolutely. All right, sir. We got about 15 more minutes. Where else would you like to go tonight? Well, uh, let's see. I think let's skip the tech correction articles for next week because those are they, those might send us down a rabbit hole. But I have a couple. Well, one, and it looks like you have a security articles this week as well. This one is from Tom's Guide, um, who's actually one of my most trusted sources for security news. They uh, have always been a great website for kind of the nerdy side of the internet, but uh, their articles on things like security are really great. But uh, Paul Wagenseal writes. Uh, um, last week on Tom's Guide that you should not allow your browser to autofill passwords, and that includes with password managers, and here's why. And the article goes into some detail about how easy it is to spoof websites in a way that, that if you have your browser or your um, a password manager plugin set to autofill in a username and password as opposed to you going out of your way to say, please fill in a password here, those passwords can actually be stolen. And as we've talked about dozens of times in the past few years, uh, both Wes and I strongly suggest utilizing a password manager. And if you are using a password manager, don't let it autofill the username and password. You should take an initiating step, whether it's clicking the username and password or a LastPass actually has a little icon that pops up. It allows you to do that, and uh, there's instructions in this article about how to turn off the, the auto-filling of passwords, uh, including um, instructions for Chrome, Firefox, Microsoft Edge, and then, of course, uh, our recommended um, password manager, uh, LastPass. But uh, it, it, it's, it's something to be aware of, and, you know, uh, you want to always be on your, your toes when it comes to security, Here's a way that if you are being super secure and utilizing long passwords as part of a password manager, you may you may want to adapt your settings to make sure that you're safe. Peggy is saying, does that autofill apply for a password manager like TrueKey? I think it does based upon what you've said because yeah. the, the sites can be spoofed. So a, a couple connections here. I am excited that this fall my third TEDx talk should be published that I shared in the spring, uh, which was – I think called technology fear therapy, but it was about protecting yourself and your family online from cyber threats. And as a result of that, I, I actually um, was in the library this weekend helping uh, an elderly couple that had attended my talk and had contacted me and wanted help. They didn't have somebody else to help them, you know, get set up with a password manager. And um, I probably should write a blog post about things that we've learned because it would like, I'd like it to be nice and simple, but, it, but it's not. And this was one of the things that I was actually, I just getting them set up with, with one password, uh, and then copying and pasting was, was a good victory, uh, with several different accounts and turning on two factor on some things. But, you know, I am, am certainly guilty myself of letting Apple go ahead and autofill, letting Chrome go ahead and autofill. So I'm uh, going to definitely check out this article and then consider consider behavior. Um, our IT manager, uh, or who was who was like our director now, <coughs> said this week that I mean we've had some incredibly kind of scary phishing attacks, spear phishing yeah. attacks that have been um, 
you know, against members of, of our staff. Mm -hmm. And these kinds of social engineering security attacks are going to continue. Uh, and so we just, this is a drum. We got to keep beating. We beat it a lot here at the EdTech Situation Room. You know, not only get yourself set up with a password manager and use it, follow the Jason Knifer model, go through all your own passwords, get all those duplicated passwords set up or changed. And Jason, I don't know if you know this, but uh, when you go to the passwords in um, iOS now, it will tell you if that's a repeated password, a weak password, or if it's been awesome. in a breach. Yeah. And so that's built into the iPhone and I'm not using the, you know, developer version or whatever. This is just the, the latest uh, stable version. So that kind of awareness actually triggered this couple to contact me because they were seeing, okay, my gosh, this has been in a breach, you know, which is a nice segue to our next article, which came to us from Peggy George. She tweeted this to me earlier uh, this afternoon. Uh, this is an article by Elliot Nesbo in makeuseof.com. And the title is, can you trust? Have I been pwned? All right. Spoiler. Yes, you can. <laughs> Troy Hunt is the white hat hacker, white hack white hat cybersecurity specialist who works for Microsoft, who um, started the, the site. And, you know, he does say, you know, how important it is to worry about, you know, what sites that you trust and putting your information in. Because I guess maybe there is a place where you can even put a password in. I think it hashes it and doesn't, you know, save it. Um, but anyway, that have I been pwned? We've talked about this on the show. I talked about that at my TEDx talk. Really a great way to help raise people's awareness of, oh, my gosh, look at these data breaches, you know, that my my email account has been a part of. And so that is a good article. And it really kind of breaks down the reasons for needing to use unique and different passwords. And, folks, this is not something that I think everybody is hearing in their organization today. And we need to be because for so long we've been told, hey, you know, got to change your password, you know, every 90 days or whatever. Um, and, and telling people that you need to use unique passwords that are not used anywhere else. They need to be long and they need to be complex. And the only way you can do that as well is with a password manager and turn on multi-factor authentication. That whole mouthful is the advice that we need to be giving. And this is a great article. So thank you, Peggy, for bringing it to our attention. And uh, yeah, pwned. It says that, is that a scary name? Well, it is a hacker term, right? It means owned. Um, but that's, you know, that's the play on it is to find out. Have you been pwned? Have you been, have you been owned by a hacker? Uh, can we, let's do a couple uh, COVID articles. Sure. Um, this is a New York Times article that was shared by Yahoo News on August 2nd to fight vaccine lies. Authorities recruit an influencer army uh, and authorities are the White House. And so uh, President Biden's team has been, hmm, that's a long link. I don't even think that'll go. Man, don't you hate it when they give you to all this tracking stuff at the end? Let me fix that. Um, so the White House, yeah, the official White House has been contacting and contacted a number of YouTube influencers. I think there's like 100. And they are, um, you know, sharing pro-vaccination messages out there. And they're being enlisted to help with this. Um, Renee DeResta, who is a disinformation and cyber security researcher and really just a phenomenal expert on, on all kinds of, of issues relating to cybercrime and, and disinformation. She says that, I mean, <laughs> you're not going to outweigh these passionate anti-vaxxers in terms of, of all the content that they're spewing and putting out. But I think this is an important fight. And it also speaks to how important social media influencers are. One of the first lessons I'm going to do 
probably with both fifth and sixth grade, but for sure, my sixth graders, I'll probably do it with both, is to, is to recognize who are the main influencers that they look to um, online. Um, how many of them are on TikTok and on YouTube and, you know, going to, to these folks and, and listening to them. And so uh, disinformation is a huge issue. We've talked about in terms of the vaccine, how the U.S. Surgeon General, uh, President Biden, others have really come out aggressively, you know, saying how much we need to, to take this seriously. Um, and so um, I think this is a, a very good proactive uh, step. Uh, any thoughts about influencers advocating for vaccines, Doctor? I mean, I guess it it is a modern channel, or right? it wouldn't be the first time that celebrities have been, you know, tapped on by government agencies to help promote messages. I can't help but to think of the uh, uh, Richard Nixon uh, Elvis Presley uh, piece, right? Where well, uh, Elvis did uh, like showed the polio vaccine on the Ed Sullivan show or something. Yeah, that that's true. Yeah. And well, and then he also received, he was an honorary DEA agent and there's a picture of Nixon and uh, Elvis Presley. Uh, he received a, what like, my memory serves me correctly. It looked like a WWE uh, belt that was, uh, you know, an honorary badge to be part of the drug enforcement agency. So it, it's definitely not new. I mean, I would say if anything, it acknowledges that you know, that there are so many diverse sources of influence in the modern day diversified media that, you know, obviously you want to go in that direction. But, you know, I, I it, 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 this is a bit off to the side of that comment, but just remember that influencers may or may not be disclosing that they are being influenced by others, sometimes for financial reasons. My guess is, is that the mainstream influencers that were under contract by United States government probably did disclose that because they had right. strict terms. But, um, you know, it's, uh, I, I do laugh when I, I've been spending a lot of time on TikTok. I think it's a pretty delightful app. Maybe that's bad news for me based on the security concerns from a year ago, but it's, it's pretty interesting place. But, um, but I, I always laugh at the number of teacher influencers that are suddenly hawking, uh, um, you know, products that, you know, like they weren't really product hawkers before. And they're suddenly like, look at my new this, 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 and that. And I was like, please disclose. Absolutely. This is an ad per the Federal Trade Commission. Yep. But, um, but, you know, just, just, you know, just remember that just because they're popular on a social media platform doesn't mean necessarily this is their own opinion, but that's always been true, right? Celebrities yeah. have been asked to pitch uh, items for years. Uh, Drew Carey, in his book that he wrote, this is 25 years ago now, talked about that he that in a chapter when he's talking about the ridiculous money that celebrities get, he said that the day his uh, network TV show was picked up, someone from Nike came and put a business card in his pocket and said, give us a call if you ever need any Nike gear. All he needs to do is wear it, and it keeps showing up again, right? So there's a lot of subtle ways that celebrities are utilized to get us to do stuff. So this is just the new version of that. Wow. Well, this is one kind of concerning the future of work, which we sometimes hear, uh, see articles on the show from Dr. Neifer on this topic. Uh, this is from Ars Technica on August the 1st. Big tech companies are at war with employees over remote work. Now, not all companies, Twitter has gone ahead to say, hey, guys, you can stay remote and don't need to come back. But um, Apple, you mentioned the spaceship or whatever, their, their you know, huge new complex. Uh, Google, the companies have had made huge investments in Silicon Valley. It's expensive to live in those closed areas. Uh, and these companies want their employees to not stay at home forever. And so this is a pretty interesting article. And um, 
it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. You know, our son is working for a defense contractor, you know, down in Houston, working for at the Johnson Space Center. They've gone back to some in in person. They were kind of on track. They thought maybe to do a 50-50%, you know, in the office and 50% out. But, you know, with Delta and stuff like that, I, I think they've backed off of that. But um, it's it, it's just fascinating because there are a number of folks who can document higher levels of measured performance when they were at home, you know, during the pandemic than, than they were uh, being in the office. Uh, my sister actually is somebody who had wanted to work from home for a long time. And it, and because of the pandemic has been able to do that and it's worked out great. And she wants to keep doing that. So she is not alone. There are literally, uh, you know, millions of people out there who want to continue to work remotely. And so to bring that to an educational standpoint, Let's remember again how we don't need to throw out every lesson that just happened with remote learning in the pandemic, because I don't think we would have ever imagined our son was going to graduate from college and then spend two months in a windowless bedroom back with his parents, you know, coding for a living <laughs> and never meeting anybody in person, except, I mean, he met his boss in, in the summer, you know, on one flight when he went down, but you know, when I worked for AT&T, I think I met my boss. I lived in Oklahoma City, still do, and he was in Topeka, Kansas. I think I met him three times, and, you know, once was on a golf course. It's just remote work is something that a lot of people have done. Um, and so, anyway, this is uh, this is real, real interesting. So, do you have a crystal ball for how this is going to play out for the Googles and Apples that really do, Jason, want their employees to not stay at home and to come back to the office? Well, I mean, I, I think of it in terms of compensation, right? Like, if you if you compensate people enough and say we only utilize face-to-face -face employees, people will come back, right? And what I would say is that I like working at home a lot, but it's also not a panacea, and I've enjoyed being back at work. And, um, you know, there is a lot of impromptu things that can happen when people are in the same physical space. That doesn't mean you have to be in the same physical space all the time, but I think there's merits to both models. But that said... Um, you know, I, I do think that uh, there is a, a large contingency of people that otherwise have white collar jobs that uh, oh, you know, there's really no need for them to be in a physical location to, to complete their job that probably will want to stay home after all this is over with. And that's one of the many questions that the post-COVID era, and we're certainly not in the post-COVID era, but the, certainly in the post-COVID era, we're going to have to figure out for ourselves. Last article I've got under COVID is a Washington Post article. Um this one says, you're going to be asked to prove your vaccination status. Here's how to do it. This was from August 3rd. Basically, in the new version of both iOS, I think, and Android, I know for iOS, there'll be a built-in way to have your vaccination status here. Uh, you can certainly just take a picture of your vaccination card. And if you haven't done that, that's a good thing to do. Uh, there are some apps that you can download. Um, they, they talk about the service clear, I think, which is the one that like you can skip through the security line if you pay and, you know, you get checked out in advance. They have a way to put that in. But the more secure and, and verifiable ways of doing this are apps that connect to the databases maintained by states about vaccines and, and have that authenticated proof. It's not just your picture because taking it, I guess you'll, you'll be able to, to counterfeit, you know, vaccination cards, just like you can, you know, counterfeit money. Um, but I thought this was interesting and I don't know if this is right or not, but I've, it says, don't call it a, a uh, what is it? A vaccine passport or something like that. Um, anyway, that people from, from a privacy standpoint, people getting up in arms about this, but it's, it's going to be interesting, right? I mean, even now, like, I don't think because of HIPAA, 
And this is hopefully something that will get clarified for us real well at school. Like, I don't think you can go up and ask a kid, hey, have you been vaccinated? I don't think you can ask him that. Uh, I don't think you can ask an adult that. Um, so anyway, in, in this next stage of, of COVID, um, that may be something that we'll need to do is to use technology to prove our vaccination status. And I think it is good that your know, driver's licenses and, you know, forms of identification that are recognized by airport security, Homeland security, you're going to be able to do all that kind of stuff on your phone. My sister was here last weekend with her family and was commenting, like the only reason she carries more than her phone is because she has to have her driver's license. Well, yeah. if police are going to be, and you, your phone is charged, you know, you can show them your phone. You're going to be able to do that. Of course, you're going to want to show that without unlocking your phone. And anyway, we won't go there, but interesting. These devices have so much information, so got to protect them well. Well, I think we need a Geek of the Week. We're almost to the top of the hour. Sure. I just have a quick one to share. Uh, GOFS is a web-based flight simulator, and I lost an hour to it this past weekend, which is the reason why I'm sharing it with others. But uh, there's a free version. It utilizes uh, Microsoft uh, Bing Maps, so you can literally fly over, um, you know, a lot of different areas with with free airplanes. There's a, a an advanced version that costs, um, you know, more money, and you can also get high or HD. Uh, uh, um, satellite photos to fly with. But if you, you know, like to play around in virtual airplanes, uh, geo-fs.com. The first flight simulator I ever played was on an amber-screened Zenith 286 <laughs> computer. And you were trying to land this little peninsula off of Chicago, which I guess that airport got destroyed by daily. And it, anyway, crazy. Don't have a lot of flight simulator experiences, but Amber screens. I'm just flashing back to them. Uh, I mentioned my Geek of the Week already. Uh, I have a post I just put up on my blog, Speed of Creativity. More YouTube restriction options for schools. And actually, you can get to everything from that post because I went ahead and embedded uh, my presentation. But I shared a presentation today for our new middle and high school faculty called Google Classroom August 2021 Updates and Tips. In addition to talking about things that have already rolled out some of those coming soon to a Google classroom near you in the fall uh, updates are included in there as well. So Dr. Neifer, where can we find you when you're not here on Wednesday nights? Hey, best place to find me is Twitter tech savvy teach. And I am at W Fryer on Twitter. You can go to westfryer.com, click the connect link and find lots of other options. So we want to thank you for attending. Thank you, Peggy, for joining us. We encourage you to check us out online at edtechsr.com, anywhere that you get a podcast. Hopefully you can find the EdTech Situation Room. Our show notes are curated on each of our episodes, and you can get those on the episodes on edtechsr.com, but you can also see the links, which we generally, as we did tonight, don't talk about all of those, and those are on edtechsr.com slash links. So until next time, we encourage you to stay savvy, stay safe, and get that password manager going. And talk about YouTube at your school. We'll see you next time. Good night.